You're listening to The Right to Be Catholic with Sean A.R. Brought to you by the Eastern Catholic Reevangelization Center. Welcome, everybody, to the Right to Be Catholic podcast, where we tackle everyday issues that we as Catholics face in our modern world today. I'm your host, Catholic speaker and advocate, Sean A.R. So today's show will focus on what we as Catholics believe. We'll touch on a few topics that Catholics um, believe in and a lot of misconception around those from non-Catholics or even, sadly, from Catholics in our faith. A few of the topics that we're going to be talking about today is veneration to our Holy Mother, uh, saints that we uh, pray, uh, pray with, and the Eucharist. And we'll, we'll tackle those three issues um, on the podcast, and hopefully by the end of the podcast, we'll have a better understanding as to what we as Catholics believe when it comes to those three topics. The quote I have for us today comes from Bishop Fulton Sheen. And Bishop Fulton Sheen is one of our great Catholic bishops. He's one of our, um, he's one of our modern bishops. Um, and I urge all of our listeners to go and listen to this wonderful man and listen to his homilies. There's many ways you can go about doing that. You can go on YouTube. There's an app. Uh, you can go and read his homilies. He's an amazing man. Uh, the quote that he said was, if you do believe, if, I'm sorry, if you do not live what you believe, you will end up believing what you live. I think it's very powerful because we as Catholics have to make sure that we do believe in what the Catholic Church says and not only pick and choose what we feel is right. And hopefully today in this session, we'll talk more and more about that. I also wanted to talk about, um, so if you're still confused and if you're wondering what do Catholics actually believe? We actually state what we believe in our mass, every mass that we have. And if you're ever wondering what that is, that is the creed. And the one I want to refer to now is called the Nicene Creed, which came from the Council of Nicaea around 325 AD, where the bishops met to talk about moral issues or issues of the faith. And they came and they put together this creed to show people or even the, the believers, what we as Catholics believe. And I want to read it to you guys now. And actually, we say this at Mass um, all the time. So it goes, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of, our, of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. Uh, he is spoken through the prophets. We believe in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. We acknowledge one baptism and the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 
So again, that's the creed that we say at Mass. There are different creeds. There, there's the Apostles' Creed, and this is the Nicene Creed. Um, but that's the one I wanted to reference for this topic because it, it puts together beautifully what we as Catholics believe. And to help me do that, I have a wonderful guest. I have with me Father Kevin Yono. Father, thank you for joining us. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Father, before we start, I want to tell our guest, do you know what you and I have in common besides being uh, faithful men of God? And I'm, I'm going to say we're both good looking guys, but faithful men of God, do you know what else we have in common? We are cousins. We are cousins. <laughs> and we're cousins because of one man named Jeff, Jeff Yono. So uh, Jeff is my brother-in-law. He's married to my sister, and he's also Kevin's first cousin. So Kevin, I'm going to, Father, I'm going to tell you this. You didn't choose him. We chose him. So we love him more <laughs> than you guys do. I'm just going to put that out there in case he's listening. You know what I mean? No, no, I love Jeff too. I love Jeff. Yeah. Father, thanks for coming on. Uh, Father, earlier you and I were talking about your journey to um, becoming a priest and how your love for the Lord came about. You want to share that with our listeners, please? Yeah, so... Um... For me, I, I used to go to church a lot, you know, when I was young, but for a little while, you know, I just got distracted by work and it's kind of a long story, but I went through a deeper conversion when I was around 21 years old. Um, and so I just started praying more and God just really started revealing himself to me in prayer. And so um, for our topic today, um, I believe when I talked about Mary and, and the saints and the Eucharist, um, so... Mary has a huge part in, I think, not only in my conversion, but also in just helping me to grow in holiness, helping me to hear the call to priesthood. And so when I first was going through my conversion, um, I could say that I had, I had some issue. I never had an issue personally with Mary. But then when I started learning more about my faith, I started learning about like what also what Protestants believe about Mary. And so... It kind of, for me, I was someone who was just, I always take things to heart. When I see good Christian people who are, I should say, offended by Marian devotion or offended so severely, some of them, they're all different. There's a lot of different denominations, so they're all in different places with this. But I was shocked when I started learning that they thought we worshipped Mary. And they started saying all these things and... And I didn't know my faith at the time. I was just going, I just started going through a conversion and I was really shaken by that. So, so I would say for me, um, so for what happened to me when, when I heard these things was I actually stopped praying the rosary uh, for three days because of the things that I was reading and because of how, because I always wanted to know the truth. If I, if these good Christian people are saying these things, I need to find out what is true. Do Catholics worship Mary? Um, yes or no. And so I started praying a novena, actually asking God um, to show me how, what's the truth about this? Um, is this? Is this the truth that we should honor Mary? And I realized the three days that I stopped praying my rosary, how much, um, how much it was just lacking, how much, how do I say this? How much virtue I lost in those three days. I would say those were one of the worst three days that I had in my life when I stopped asking Mary to intercede for me. I just started seeing how, how much Mary helped me to be pure, be virtuous, following Christ, being filled with grace in my life. And so when I started realizing 
that this was ridiculous and I started praying more. Um, Mary started giving me special graces where I started to see how powerful her intercession was. Not to talk too much about that, but one of the graces I received was, um, I was pray- during that time, I was praying for a man. I mean, I've told this story before in a homily, but I was praying for a man that came into my store. And he came into my store and I started praying for him, Hail Marys. And, on, and this man loved Jesus so much and I just wanted to pray for him. And I prayed silently to myself, three or four Hail Marys, just praying for him. And as I was praying, the man starts looking at the ceiling in my store and starts saying to me, I feel this incredible peace right now coming upon me. And he's like, I don't know where it's coming from. And I know that God was showing me, literally right in front of me, these Hail Marys that I I was praying are giving this man peace right in front of me. And he didn't know I was even praying for him while he was just shopping in my store. So there was a lot of other experiences, other moments where I just realized anyone who's close to Mary is filled with virtue, is usually filled with so, so united to Jesus, how Mary brings you closer to Christ. And then I started looking up all the places in scripture that proved it wrong, that actually everything we do is not, a lot of it is already rooted in scripture, but it's just a complete misunderstanding from those who broke off from the church that Christ established. So that's just a little bit of um, how Mary was working in my life and my vocation. So that's just a little bit of something where she helped me. Thank you for sharing that. That's actually a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually one of the topics that I wanted to talk to you about. And because of your love for our, for our mother, uh, Mary, uh, one of the common misconceptions that non-Catholics, you know, Christians have about the Catholic faith is that they think we worship the Virgin Mother. And, mm-hmm. and sadly, uh, some Catholics don't even know the why behind why we venerate and honor our mother so much. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to pose that to you. And if you can share some of your knowledge regarding um, that topic, because it, for me personally, uh, from what I know, you know, of all the miracles, even like the, uh, you and I the other day were talking about this, the first miracle that Jesus performed wasn't one that he actually wanted to perform, but it was because his at the wedding of Cana, the turning, turning the water into wine. And he even turned to his mother and said, you know, it's not my time, but because you asked me, I will mm-hmm. do it. Right. I'm, I'm not quoting it hundred percent the way uh, it was said in the Bible, yeah. but, but mm-hmm. in the, in just that's, that's what he said. And t- to me, um, I, I, I want to think like, you know, if mm-hmm. God almighty out of all the people in the world, he could have picked anybody to be his mother. He chose this woman, right? Yes. And, mm-hmm. and, and now she's the queen of heaven. Yeah. Like, she's got to be something special. Right. But please share your thoughts as well. Okay. So there's a lot of different ways I can show that we honor Mary and why we honor her. But first we make very clear, very early on in the church, Um, especially through Augustine and early on, it's very clear that we've never, ever worshipped Mary. There's never been a time in the history of the church where the church says, worship Mary. In fact, it's not in the catechism. It's not anywhere. In fact, it declares that anyone that worships her is committing a sin if you do worship her, right? If it's out of ignorance, if it's out of something you don't understand. But it's very clear that um, Augustine even points out, St. Augustine says, for the word adoration for giving glory is latria. And that is only given directly to God. And the word dulia 
honoring someone, revering them, giving them veneration is, is literally only given, is given to the saints, but only adoration and glory belong to God alone. So honoring someone is not the same as giving them glory in the sense of adoration. We are not, we're not adoring the Virgin Mary as she is God. There is one God. And this is very clear in the church. So why do we think she's so special? So you bring up one good point. We can start where you started off when you said, um, you said, um, because of Mary, Jesus did his first miracle, his public miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. And we can see very early on, um, Jesus says, he calls her woman. And he says, oh, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And immediately when Jesus seems as if he doesn't want to do this miracle, but usually when Jesus responds with a question, he's trying how much faith a person has. Every time sometimes someone asks Jesus to do something, he like, he's looking for a deeper faith. He's looking to see how much faith you have. And so Mary, the way she responds is incredible. She doesn't even say anything to him directly. She says, do whatever he tells you. So it's as if she moves the divine power. She moves Jesus Christ simply by just commanding the servants to do whatever he tells them. He just said, I'm not, this is not my time. And then immediately he just literally, it's like one look at Mary and he does what she asks. Why? She's his mother. mother. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. He honors his mother, right? And he's not trying to be insulting to his mother by calling her woman. And we're going to get more deeply into that. He says, oh, woman, right? And so the church fathers begin to look at this word woman and start realizing that it's pointing to something greater than it's pointing to her identity, right? Because this is why Jesus is calling her woman. No one in Jewish tradition ever calls their mother, just randomly calls her woman. You know, that doesn't really make any sense unless you know scripture, right? Right. Because the writer is trying to show us what's going on by putting it in what Jesus says. And so what I want to do is to go first to the foot of the cross and just to see, begin to see what, where, where Jesus begins to call another place that Jesus calls her woman. So we can make Which is with John, correct? Yes, with his, with his, which is with thought of to be the beloved disciple John at the foot of the cross. So this is in John 19, um, verse 26, starting in 26. He says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And here we see that the writer doesn't even use John's name, but it just says he's the beloved. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. And the writer is usually writing this as a certain literary style so that a person can place themselves in the shoes of the disciple. Oh, wow. Everything Jesus said on the cross had deep spiritual meaning. Like when Jesus says the words, I thirst, he's not simply saying, he's not simply saying I'm thirsty for something. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. He's saying something far deeper than that about trust in God. Everything Jesus did, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Today you'll be with me in paradise. These have deep spiritual meaning for us, but all of a sudden, 
for a lot of Christians, this just means, oh, God is just, Jesus is just saying to Mary, um, hey, I want John to take care of you, especially the way he says it. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. This is not the time and place you would think, especially that Jesus is going to be talking about this with them if he's just telling him to take care of her, right? We know that Jesus can barely speak on the cross. He has to push his feet against the cross just to say a few words. He's being, he's suffocating. So for him to say anything is extremely difficult. And we know it's important, it's important right? And so we know that Jesus is going to rise in less than 72 hours. We know that Jesus is going to rise and he knows he's going to rise from the dead. Where has Mary been for three years? We don't see her back and forth really much at the wedding feast of Cana. So why all of a sudden does she need someone to take care of her who is not even a relative? John is not related to Mary. It's unheard of that a man who's not related to, to a Jewish woman is going to take care of the mother of, of, of Christ. That doesn't make any sense. So we have right. to look at this. Something deeper is happening here, right? So and why he keeps calling her woman is that we have to go to Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15, God is God says... Let me just look it up here. He says, um, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. And so basically what he's doing is this, this passage is by the church fathers. And a lot of Protestants agree with this, that this passage is the first good news. It's called the proto-gospel. It's the first good news that God gave us, that he's going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, essentially talking about a woman who's going to come and her seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. The new Eve. And so, exactly. That's what the church fathers call this, use this verse to describe, to begin to describe that Mary is the new Eve. And so this is not something that is in the Middle Ages. It's not something that was like from 500 years ago. We're talking about second century AD, um, beginning with um, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr. And I'm just going to read a quote um, from St. Irenaeus, who was was trained by by St. Polycarp, who's trained by the Apostle John. So this is very early on, second century, not that far from when Jesus died. He says, the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. For what the virgin Eve had bound fast through unbelief, this did the virgin Mary set free through faith. And it's a lot longer than that. There's a lot of other things. But he even says, I believe it was him who said, she's also the cause of our salvation. And I believe it's tied to this quote. But the point is... um, even very early on, they're calling her the woman who basically undid what Eve did. And so there are other, other people who, who point to this, St. Ephraim, the Syrian, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, this St. Jerome. So many people are revealing more and more so that she is this new Eve. So, so we begin to see how the church fathers begin to see how Mary was a co-worker 
with Christ for our salvation and the most the person who was more intimately connected with our salvation than any other person. No other Christian than Catholics, maybe Orthodox, see Mary having this role. Other people do not give her this role at, as she's co-working with Christ, undoing the knot he did. They don't really acknowledge, they don't acknowledge this. Even though this is very early on, you begin to see how holy they thought Mary was. Well, even so from birth, even from, even from birth, a lot of Catholics um, uh, misinterpret this as well. The Immaculate Conception is not Jesus Christ. It was Mother Mary when it, she was born. Mother, right. Mm-hmm. So if God himself, you know, made this woman so pure because he was preparing the way for, you know, his son to be born through this woman, why would he go that length, mm-hmm. right? Because she, he knew she was something special. And actually, you and I were talking about this the other day, the correlation between our Mother mm-hmm. Mary and the tabernacle, how a lot of Catholics view our Mother Mary as the new tabernacle. Now, if you wanted to, you and I were talking, if you want to go back to the actual tabernacle itself, uh, it held what? It held mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments, right? The Word of God. It held the manna. The, the bread of mm-hmm. life and the, the what the staff of Aaron is it right is it the the yeah so so we call that the ark of the covenant I'm sorry um, yeah the ark of the covenant we consider it like a tabernacle but the whole thing the moving tent that would move in the desert that's what we call the whole thing um, a moving tabernacle yes we do. correct yeah but the, yeah the ark of the covenant I apologize yeah the ark of the covenant yeah yeah so yeah so what I the other what I, other thing I wanted to point out is so Mary's birth is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, okay? So God is preparing us, like I said in Genesis 3.15, that this woman's birth is foretold. And not only is it foretold, there's many different types that Mary fulfills in the Old Testament. She, she represents all the early women saints of the Old Testament. She represents Rachel. She represents so many of the women, women saints. But most of all, what's clear is that Mary represents the new Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. So like you were saying, with the Ark. So I want to show how important understanding where we get, like, why is Mary immaculately conceived? Why do we think she's so holy? And really, it is connections between how Mary fulfills a lot of these New Testament types, but especially how God is making it clear that she is the new Ark of the Covenant and how the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was simply a representation of who Mary is, who Mary is and how holy she is. So I can make that very clear for us. Um, but I, if you want me to just, yeah, we'll talk about, yeah, we'll talk about that right now. That's very easy. Let me just give you an overview of that. So if you don't know what the Ark is first, the Ark is basically when Moses was in the was um to, left Egypt. We all know the story of Moses when he took yep. the, the, the Israelites the Israelites out of Egypt, the ten plagues of Egypt. And so, when God um, called Moses into the desert with the Israelites, Moses had a special relationship with God. God spoke to him face to face. God gave him more than any of the prophets. He had a special relationship with God. He essentially gave him instructions for their entire religion about how they should do sacrifice everything, how to design, design the first like worship areas, the altar, the, the moving tent, the Ark of the Covenant, the whole thing. He basically 
had a special relationship with God and set up the whole Israelite faith. Right. So God told Moses to, yes. So God told Moses to build an ark and an ark is basically a gold box. It was made out of wood first, acacia wood, which is actually um, an incorruptible wood. And it would be lined with the purest gold that there is. It would be the gold of um, tahor, the word tahor meaning clean, pure, the purest gold. And um, it symbolized the absolute holiness of the ark and had golden poles and they would carry it around. And like you said, it had the, um, it had the manna that fell from heaven. Yep. The bread, that, the bread that fell from heaven that fed the Israelites. It had the staff of Aaron, which represents his priesthood. And it had the, the Ten Commandments, the tablet that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai and placed inside the ark. And so God built, or God told Moses, so this is where we get into understanding like how sometimes some people think having statues is sinful. And so Moses actually said to build two golden cherubims, two statues of angels. Angels. And to, yes, angels, and to place them on the ark. And so I don't know if you've heard yourself, have you heard a lot of people say like, why do if we have touch, statues? Oh yeah. People always say like, why do we, why do we pray to statues as Catholics? Yeah. As Catholics. And so, and so the point is those statues, even in, in the time of um, Israel were used in liturgical processions. They were these, the ark was used in liturgical processions. It was, they prayed before the ark and David prayed before the ark. He worshiped God before the ark and they had statues on top of it. And so we make it clear as Catholics, we're not worshiping any statue. And if any Catholic is worshiping a statue, they're actually right. sinning. Yeah. It's, it's, it's supposed to remind you to pray and to remember the Blessed Virgin Mary to ask her for her prayers, but it's not to be worshiped itself. That's worship belongs to God alone. So anyway, so it shows, but clear that clearly that they had statues and they did make statues. So in the Ten Commandments, when we say God said, don't make a graven image, he's saying, do not make an image to be worshipped. We do not make any images to be worshipped. For example, no one in the Protestant church, and I got a little bit cut off from the Ark of the Covenant, but I'm going to go back to that, but because I'm talking about statues, no one, for example, if you saw like Mount Rushmore or a statue of a president or Abraham Lincoln or someone, no one's ever going to say that, oh, that's idolatry, simply no. having a statue. No it reminds one you of that, that person. Right. right. It reminds you of that person or having a picture of someone in your house, of your family member. Right. No one's going to say that that's, that that's idol worship by having that to remind you of that person, right? No, exactly. And so, yeah, no one will say that. But when it comes to Catholics having statues, they, they, they keep thinking that we're using them in idol worship. And I don't blame some Protestants because they do seeing, see us praying before the statue. But we are usually either talking to Jesus or we are asking a saint in heaven to pray for us. It's to remind us to pray. Right? The intercession, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's never, ever worshipped, ever. And that's the truth. And anyone who thinks that is just confused because they're not used to having these in their, church, in their Protestant churches. A lot of churches, not all of them but having these things. Right. So it could seem confusing on the outside, but when you really learn and understand what Catholics are doing, you'll see that we do not worship the statue. In fact, it's sinful if anyone does. 
Correct. So make that clear. And so go back, going back to the ark. So we see that the ark has these holy, uh, holy things that God said, the, the manna, the staff of Aaron, the Ten Commandments. And so, so the holiness of the ark is the holiest object that Israel has. It's essentially the throne of God. The cloud comes upon it, descends upon it, and it's known as the mercy seat of God. God comes upon the ark. Only God does. And it's so holy, this object is so holy, that if you touched it without permission, you would die. Someone even attempted to touch it, didn't even get to touch it, attempted to touch it in the Old Testament and instantly was killed by God, instantly. Vaporized. Why? Because the holiness of the ark is showing you how holy it is. And so this is simply a type of Mary, okay? Types are something that a person or an object or something that's fulfilled and completed in the New Testament, something that came in the Old Testament pointing to something greater in the future. So we can make this very clear, and, and I went over this with you before, but I'm going to make it very clear um, um, where it says this. So, so the writer in the New Testament when Mary visits Elizabeth, the writer is trying to show you that Mary is the ark. He does this very clearly. And in fact, God is doing this because essentially it's events in history that are just being written down that show you Mary is the ark. So first, before Mary visits Elizabeth, in Luke chapters 1, 1 verses 35, it says, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary... And the power of the Most High overshadows her. Wow. Okay? And so in the Old Testament, it says, the glory of the Lord, and this is in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 35, it says, the glory of the Lord in the cloud over the cover the tabernacle and overshadow them. So, so only the cloud would ever overshadow what in the Old Testament? The tabernacle. The ark. Oh, the ark, I'm sorry. The, yeah. Yeah, the ark. It's still in the tabernacle. Yeah, right. that's, the whole thing is called the tabernacle. And so the cloud would overshadow on the tabernacle and on the ark and would come upon the ark. And so, and so now in the New Testament, God is going to overshadow Mary. This a is person, incredible. Right. Yeah. A person, a human being, the cloud is going to come upon her. This is like, how could it, it would, it would think it should kill her. Right. Of God is going to overshadow you in this way and come upon you. How, how can you be, how can you accept this? So not only that, but then Mary goes into the hill country to visit Elizabeth. So in her Luke cousin. 130, I'm sorry. Her cousin, correct? Yeah, her cousin. And in Luke 139, he says, Mary arose and went into the hill country of Judah to visit Elizabeth. And in 2 Samuel 6, 2, it says, David arose and went to the hill country of Judah, just like Mary, hill country of Judah. Then Luke 1, 43, it says, Elizabeth, it's St. Elizabeth admits her unworthiness to receive Mary by exclaiming, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then David says the same thing. He says, David admits his unworthiness to receive the ark by exclaiming, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? This is 2 Samuel 6, 9. 
And then we see David leap before the ark as it was brought in with shouting. It says, and this is um, 2 Samuel 6, 15 through 16. And then it says, John leaped in Elizabeth's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. And Elizabeth cried with a loud shout. Luke 1, 41 through 42. And then it says, the ark remained in the hill country in the house of Obadiah three months. And it says, Mary remained in the hill country in Elizabeth's house, house three months. There's wow. nothing more clear than I've seen, like crystal clear parallel, crystal clear showing you that Mary is the new ark. It's the new ark, 100%. I mean, those examples you just gave right now, like how you said, we're crystal clear on that. Crystal me, clear. You, you know, t- to me, myself, I always saw people, you know, who, who argue the fact that, um, our, that the mother, like, why do we give so much honor to the virgin mother? And I tell them, for example, in your own life, and I tell them, are you close to your mother? And they're like, the, and most times people say, like, I'm very close. I'll do anything for her. And I tell them, so if I want something from you, I'm going to go to your mother to get it from you if I really mm-hmm. wanted it for you or, or from you. And I tell them, mm-hmm. okay, so if, if Jesus Christ loved his mother so much and it's proven time mm-hmm. and time again how much he's loved her, right? When, when I want mm-hmm. something from my Lord, if I go to his mother, I, I truly <laughs> believe that, that, you know, and, and, and you and I were talking about this, how she's actually the mother of God. You know, a lot of people refer to her as mm-hmm. Jesus or she's the mother of God. She's the mother of God, right? Because mm-hmm. Jesus yeah. is God. But, and I tell him, you know, if I want something from my Lord, I'm going to go to his mother. And I, I, I really do believe that mm-hmm. when she presents this, like, hey, on behalf of me, do this for me. Just like how she, just like how she asked at the wedding of Cana, do mm-hmm. this for me, right? Just do what I tell you to do. And he does it. it it's mm-hmm. time again. Prove it. But yeah. the points you brought up were actually amazing. And, and yeah, you know, I, I, I really feel like, and, and- go ahead. No, no. So what I was trying to say is, so if for typology and how it works, when we talk about types of the Old Testament, the New Testament fulfillments are always greater than, the, than their Old Testament types. Right. So the ark is nothing compared to actually what Mary is. And when you really think about that, that's actually scary. That's awesome. Like scary in a radical way, like how powerful is this person? And, and, and so, because the ark was the holiest object they owned, they literally processed around it. One example is when they processed around their enemy, um, the city of Jericho. Right, warfare. Wherefore, where, uh, where, warfare. They processed around seven times. And literally, when they blew their trumpets, whenever the ark was with them in battle, they'd win. And, and the ark, and they used it in battle. You can say as if the ark is a representation of the pregnant virgin Mary. It's like God is within it because those things that are, that are inside the ark represent Jesus. So it's literally as if they're carrying the pregnant Mary around because that's what it symbolizes. That's what it's about. It's all about Jesus and Mary, all of it, the whole faith of Israel, as if they processing around them saying that they will defeat their enemies, that they can't do it on their own. So not only that, but the ark, like I said, if you touch it without permission, you die. Then if that's just a foreshadowment of Mary, then like 
the whole one story I like to share is I believe it's I believe it's in the book of Eusebius, um, church history. And I believe, I'm pretty sure it's in there. I don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's in this. Early church, um, very widely known um, church historian, one of the early ones who documented a lot of the early church history, has a story about Mary visiting a city. And it's, we don't know if it's 100% if it's true, but very early on in the, believe in the third century, I believe he wrote this. Um, I don't, I'm pretty sure in the third century, wrote Eusebius' church history. And um, it talks about a story about how Mary went into a city and they drew swords at her. And all the swords in the entire city, this is after Christ's resurrection, of course, all the swords, um, all the swords in the city melted when they drew swords at her. And this is actually documented in an early, early um, church by this guy actually writing this story. And it must be widely circulated. This story about how the Blessed Virgin Mary, how they just tried to attack her. And all the swords, it says, in the entire kingdom melted. And she went up to the king and she like converted, they converted the whole city to Christianity or a town or whatever it was. And, and I have to look up the story, but it's a good story to look up. Um, but it's something, and one example about how early on Mary in the early church was thought of revered, highly revered, highly honored, even in the liturgy as time progresses about her dormition, her assumption, her holiness, her intercession. This is all early centuries of the church, not something that just developed in the 15th century, the 13th century. This is developed early, not later. Just like with the new Eve, second century, thinking that she was the cause of our salvation. This is not, some people think that where do we get this from? The problem is when people break off from the church, when you break off from the Catholic church and from the apostolic churches, you lose all this tradition, which is good tradition of how we are to have faith, how we are to pray, how we are to honor God. We lose all of that when you just simply take the Bible and give it to a bunch of people and say, okay, now you figure it out, figure it out. You're all going to come up with different things. So, so when you lose all of that, you just, you can't understand how Mary fits in with the plan of salvation. When you're not looking at through the eyes of the whole church, eyes of the church fathers, eyes of the liturgy of the church in every apostolic church, if you're not looking at it through history, you're just, how did you come up with it? Because these churches sprung out later on, so they're not going to have it the way we do. Um, does that help? No. It, it actually does it actually phenomenally. Father Kevin, uh, thank you again for joining us. Um, I look forward to sitting with you again in part two of our discussion where we will continue this mm-hmm. uh, amazing topic where we'll talk about our saints and why we um, honor our saints and pray with our saints for their intercession. And we will talk, of course, about something that is most important in our Catholic faith, the actual Eucharist. Father, again, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm honored to have you on our show. Uh, like I want to encourage all of our listeners to continue in going out and learn more and more about our Virgin Mother and how wonderful and beautiful and the, the honor we give to her. Uh, and how Father Kevin mentioned earlier, like his Marian devotion, and how it led him to his conversion to becoming um, a Catholic priest and to see how beautiful she is, and not only on the outside, but on the inside, uh, and know that the power she has uh, 
to assist us in our time of need and how she is actually not just the mother of our Lord, but she is our mother herself. And Jesus Christ said this when he did say how Father Kevin mentioned earlier to, to John the, uh, the Apostle, he said, woman, behold your son and son, behold your mother. Uh, Father, I, I know you'll agree with this, that that was his way of saying to us, she's your mother now to all of us. Absolutely. She's the mother of everyone. And that's in Revelation itself. She's, it says that the woman is the mother of all those who follow the commandments of her son. And it makes it clear that she is our mother. And we can, go, we can talk about that a little bit next time as well. Sounds good. Again, guys, uh, thank you for joining us. I look forward to the part two of this discussion next month. Like I always say, uh, remember to go forth with confidence and that you have the right to be Catholic. God bless everybody. You have been listening to an ECRC Martoma Productions podcast. To learn more about ECRC and all of our programs, go to ecrc.us.